This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the cost of food up more than 8% in the last year, but the inflation rate may have peaked. How long will the price pain linger? Also, how politics and media coverage get in the way of a meaningful discussion on changes to superannuation. The fact that we're talking about a fairly minor change to superannuation tax arrangements shows how febrile this discussion is at the moment. I can't imagine the Labor Party will entertain much more reform between now and 2025. And the danger of mixing cough medicine with surgery is revealed. Dozens of syrups and lozenges are being taken off the shelves. Falcadine is a very common, if not the most common, cough suppressant available in Australia and we've been using it since the 1950s. So most Australian households will have this sitting in their medicine cabinet. First tonight, the latest official figures from the Bureau of Statistics show growth in Australia's economy is slowing and inflation is going down. It fell to 7.4% in the year to January, well below what economists expected. But paying for life's essentials is still feeling pretty tough for many Australians. As Nell Whitehead reports, the drop in inflation is prompting more questions about the Reserve Bank's plans for extra, extra interest rate hikes. In Adelaide's central market, shoppers are feeling the rising costs. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, you buy a bag of groceries that used to cost you 30 bucks and now it's 60. It's very, very tight. I'm a manager in Queensland, single mum of two kids, um, and it's Excel spreadsheeted week to week, um, right down to the T. And some have had to change their shopping lists to try and make some savings. You know, you're looking at doing vegetarian meals and cutting out meat and things like that. Not buying coffees, not eating out. When it comes to food shopping, we try and shop in the cheaper places and markets and stuff. So, For me, I don't buy a lot of meat anymore because it seems to have skyrocketed. But for a growing number of Australians, that's not enough. Food Bank Australia Chief Executive Brianna Casey says there are more Australians needing food relief now than at the height of the pandemic. The reality is right now we are seeing more and more people needing food relief more often and a real change in the demographics around the people that we're helping. Interestingly, more than half of food insecure households right now have someone in employment or in fact multiple people in employment. Even those that we would traditionally call middle income are really starting to struggle to cover all of the household basics. New figures show inflation is easing to 7.4% in the year to January, down from 8.4% in the year to December. Though there were still big price rises in housing from higher rents and mortgage repayments, and food prices rose by 8.2% over the year. Here's Treasurer Jim Chalmers. Uh, Obviously, inflation will be higher than we'd like for longer than we'd like, but this is an encouraging sign in this monthly inflation number that inflation is likely to have peaked at the end of last year. High prices are dampening consumer demand, and that's causing the economy to lose steam. GDP grew by 0.5% in the December quarter, but with annual growth of 2.7%. Jim Chalmers argues Australia's still faring relatively well. 
This is faster growth than all of the major advanced economies, and it's more than twice the growth of the OECD average. Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor takes a less optimistic view. What we see in that data is a slowing economy and raging inflation. We're seeing the enormous pressures now on Australian households. They are pulling back on their savings rates in order to be able to make ends meet. Independent economist Nikki Hutley says there's evidence that inflation is now cooling. And a lot of the factors that were driving that really high inflation are coming out. We are opening up our our supply chains. Energy and a lot of commodity prices have softened a little bit. Um, We haven't got into a wage price spiral. So all the things that that have driven inflation in the past, um, those shocks to the system because of COVID mainly, um, they are now not there and they are obviously feeding their way out. So does it still look like we're going to tread that narrow line between slowing down inflation without a, a recession coming? Is, is a recession likely at this point? Look, I still think there's a, a fairly reasonable probability of that we will get a recession and everything will hinge on how much further the Reserve Bank tightens interest rates and how we respond. We're only just starting to see the impact of all the rate rises we had in 2022. If we get several more this year, the risk of recession certainly rises. Um, these numbers suggest you know, that there's probably reason to pause with interest rate rises. The Reserve Bank has argued that more hikes are still needed. Markets are expecting at least three more ahead, taking interest rates to over 4%. Neil Whitehead reporting there with Angus Randall. The government's superannuation proposal will affect just a fraction of the wealthiest Australians, but commentators in conservative politics and the media are condemning the plan. They say it's class warfare and evidence that Labor breaks promises. But media and politics commentators worry these reactions distract from meaningful policy discussions. In a moment, we'll have an in-depth look at this proposed change to superannuation and what it means in dollar terms for those sitting on a huge nest egg. But first, this report from Matt Bamford. Labor wants to increase the tax paid by the wealthiest super savers in a move it says will affect around 80,000 people. It's a red flag for David Koch, host of Channel 7's Sunrise program. Is this just the thin end of the wedge? Johnny Minow, Treasurer Jim Chalmers... In a tense standoff, the presenter repeatedly asked whether any other changes to tax concessions were on the table. You're starting to rate our our superannuation. What's next? Can you guarantee no change ever to the capital gains tax exemption on the family home? We haven't been contemplating changes uh, to that one that you identified, uh, but we have... Not contemplating. Okay, that's sort of a weasel word. Can you guarantee... Well, not, not intentionally, Koshi. I'm trying to be upfront with your viewers can you, to tell okay. them. Okay, so just say yes. You can just say yes. I guarantee well, that. Well I, could, well, I can say to your viewers that we haven't been focused on it, we haven't been working on it. It's not something that we've been just contemplating. Say yes. 20 minutes later, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese went on the ABC's Radio National to clear up any confusion. We are not going to impact... Uh, the family home. Why not? Full stop, exclamation mark. Scare tactics are ramping up in sections of the media. Claims of class warfare and a Frankenstein revival of past Labor policies splashed across the front pages. 
The federal opposition is stepping up its attack too, with Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor seizing on the issue. This is a super-size election promise that has been broken. Christopher Warren is the media correspondent for news website Crikey. He says it's a shambolic debate. Because it turns what is an important policy issue into a discussion about the politics of it. That is, how is it going to play out uh, in elections or what people will think about it, rather than allowing people to make decisions about what's going to affect them based on what it actually means. Now, I can understand why politicians want to do that, but the job of journalists and the media is to tell people what they need to know so they can make decisions about their lives. And that's what many media organisations currently uh, are not doing. And why is this? Partly because it's become a bit what media do, that we report not the policy, because that's contentious and debated and may, may make us appear biased, but instead report about the politics, because that's neutral and we can make criticisms without making political judgments or, part, part of, or be seen to be making partisan judgments. Dr Jill Shepherd is a politics lecturer at the Australian National University. Despite the hype, she says claims of broken promises aren't as politically damaging as some might think. You know, a lot of voters simply don't know what promises were made going into an election and so the idea of breaking some vow that, you know, is deeply held by either the party or the voters who voted for them um, doesn't seem to resonate so much in Australia. I don't think that uh, in terms of promises broken... Uh, the Labor Party really faces a huge challenge here. But she says it does have a stifling effect on more ambitious reform. I think the fact that we're talking about a fairly minor change to superannuation tax arrangements for people with over $3 million in their retirement account uh, shows how febrile this discussion is at the moment. I can't imagine that this little step and the kind of response that it's seen from different uh, advocacy groups and the media so far in the, the last 24 hours would suggest that the Labor Party will uh, entertain much more reform between now and 2025. Yeah, right. So this could be a high watermark then. <laughs> I think it's it's a bit uh, yeah pessimistic to say, but I think this is the Labor Party dipping their toe in the water. Uh, I don't know that they will be thrilled about how it's been received, even though it's a fairly minimal policy change. Uh, and it just shows that I think, you know, Australian politics isn't used to having these kinds of debates at the moment. The two major parties are pretty risk-averse and, um, you know, I think the response here will, will suggest that both parties will go back into their bubble a little bit. Politics lecturer Dr Jill Shepherd from the Australian National University, Matt Bamford, with that report. Well, if you've been unclear on exactly what this superannuation change will mean for very wealthy Australians, keep listening. We'll have an example of the financial hit they'll face. Deanne Stewart is the CEO of Aware Super, and I first asked her to explain the basics. How is our superannuation taxed? When you look at the superannuation system, there's two forms of taxes that occur. One is on your contribution, so when you're contributing into your superannuation fund, and for many people they do that as a pre-tax, and so ultimately at that point that is taxed as it goes in at the 15% um, and comes out in terms of your salary and that side. Then there's earnings that occur, so when you've put uh, say 100000 into super, over any given year, you have earnings from your superannuation, so invested in investment markets, and those earnings 
when you're in accumulation mode, get taxed at 15%. And the fund does that at an overall fund level. So you do not necessarily see that tax occur because what you get is the returns that are after tax um, when you see what your earnings are in your superannuation. So that's done at a fund level. So this change the government wants to introduce, the increase from 15% to 30% for the, on those who have a balance of $3 million or more, which component is that tax taken from? Yeah. So this uh, increase from 15% to 30% is on the earnings. And so that's essentially what the investment returns are in your super fund. And as I said, in accumulation, today that's 15%, but for those that will be over 3 million, that will be at 30%. But actually for those in retirement, it is 0% on earnings. And so that will go from 0 to 30% in a reti- those in retirement phase. So my understanding, and they've literally just brought out a fact sheet, is that that extra amount, if you indeed do have over 3 million in your superannuation and you need to pay the 30% will actually be uh, received, you'll get a notification of the extra tax liability directly from the ATO. And then you will have a choice of whether you pay that tax out of pocket or indeed whether you pay that from your superannuation. So it's a little bit like for some people that are high earners and end up having to pay more tax on their contributions than the 15%, they get what's called Div 293, where they get that notification from ATO. My understanding is that it will occur in a very similar way. I don't know whether you've crunched the numbers, but are you able to give us an idea of the kind of retirement income a person with a $3 million balance has at the moment and what that will change to if the 30% does come in? Over the last decade, on average, we've earned uh, for our members about 9.5% per annum. So if you've got, say, 3.5 million, that means in an earning sense, getting that 9.5, you're getting just over $330,000 of earnings every year. So today, that might be taxed at 15%. So you'd be paying roughly around 50000 But after the tax take effect, you'll be paying 15% on that first $3 million, So that's about 42000 But then you'll pay an extra 15% on that extra half a million because you've got $3.5 million at that extra uh, 15%. So that would be an additional 14000 So that's an example of how that will work. So you'll end up paying 57000 in tax rather than 50000 today. Given what super is designed for to fund people's retirement incomes, do you think it's appropriate that some people are earning more, more than $300,000 in retirement income annually? Well, ultimately, that I think is why the government is looking at it because when you think about retirement, and this is why we're a very strong advocate for uh, announce the government's announcement of legislating a purpose of superannuation because the purpose of superannuation really is about helping Australians 
have a retirement income. It's not about inheritance or wealth accumulation. And so I think ultimately when you're earning that type of amount of money, you could say that there's a fair amount of that that is more about wealth accumulation and inheritance rather than an income for retirement. Are people with balances of $3 million or more almost always in self-managed funds? Or, for example, does your super fund, Aware Super, have some people with those sorts of balances? Uh, we certainly have a few members with those sort of balances, but the great majority of our members have significantly less balances as they do in most super funds around Australia. When you look at those 80,000 Australians, I suspect a lot of them are in self-managed super fund, but a lot of them are in industry funds as well or in retail funds. The government thinks that by making this change, it'll earn, it'll pull into the coffers about $2 billion. How would you like to see that money spent? What we'd like to see is that that actually helps address some of the disparity in the system. And we'd certainly encourage the government to consider using some of those savings achieved to actually improve equity. So to give you an example, those on low income or women tend to get far less tax concessions because they've got far less superannuation. So two examples that we'd like to see is paying superannuation guarantee on paid parental leave or indeed unpaid parental leave or raising the low income super tax uh, offset to really improve the financial stability and the retirements of those many women and low-income earners that don't benefit as much from the system today. Deanne Stewart, the CEO of Aware Super. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, most ferries burn plenty of high-emissions diesel fuel, so can Australia's fleets be upgraded to run on battery power? It's not an impossible dream. It's not something down the track. We could sign contracts this year if that was what the government wanted to do. I think there's this extraordinary opportunity to redesign boats. They'll look more like they used to. They'll look more like big, long, sleek canoes. And that's how we'll get the energy efficiency. That's how we'll make the batteries go further. The Therapeutic Goods Administration is recalling dozens of cough medicines which can cause deadly allergic reactions in people under general anaesthetic. The 55 products containing Folkadine, including a range of common cough syrups and lozenges, can no longer be lawfully supplied in Australia. So what should you do with the cough medicine in your cupboard? Rachel Hayter reports. The human race has become a lot more familiar with the dry cough over the last few years. Now there are fewer drugs on the market to suppress it. Folkadine is a very common, if not the most common, cough suppressant available in Australia and we've been using it since the 1950s. Professor Trent Toomey is the National President of the Pharmacy Guild of Australia. Most Australian households will have this sitting in their medicine cabinet. The Therapeutic Goods Administration is cancelling 55 products containing the ingredient Folkadine. It's an opioid that works directly in the brain to suppress the cough reflex by reducing nerve signals. The decision was made because folkadine can cause deadly allergic reactions in people under general anaesthetic. The theory is that the exposure to folkadine in the cough suppressant medication can stimulate the formation of antibodies which cross-react 
with the drugs that are used to relax muscles, to paralyse muscles during major surgery. Dr Joanna Sutherland is Chair of the Safety and Quality Committee at the Australian and New Zealand College of Anaesthetists. Although this problem is rare, the outcome can be serious and indeed fatal. The TGA's recall affects a range of cough syrups and lozenges manufactured by Benadryl, Codrel, Chemist's Own, Terry White, Priceline, Diflam, Durotas and others. Dr Sutherland says the dangers of Folcadine outweigh its benefits. In a 12-month period in 2019, we would estimate that over 400 people had episodes of anaphylaxis around the time of an operation and we estimate that just under half of those were caused by neuromuscular blocking agents. The European Medicines Agency recommended the withdrawal of Folcadine in Europe in December last year, which prompted drug shortages. Professor Toomey says that's unlikely to happen here. We don't anticipate that that will happen here in Australia because, as you'll know, in December, that's the middle of the winter cold and flu season in the Northern Hemisphere, whereas we're removing this from market in March. And so we have several months before it gets to our Southern Hemisphere winter. If you have medicines containing Folcadine, you should ask your doctor or pharmacist to suggest an alternative treatment. Rachel Hayter reporting. The Alice Springs Council is facing accusations it's opened racial divisions in the town by banning a remote AFL community football competition from its ovals. The council, though, is defending the decision, saying it's necessary to prevent more antisocial behaviour and crime in the embattled town. Jane Barden reports. It's an invitation that usually brings keen footy players from central Australian remote communities to Alice Springs every year. But the community football competition run by the AFLNT has hit a hurdle. Former player Alice Springs Indigenous leader and town councillor Michael Little pushed to ban the Bush League from using the council's ovals from May to August this year. The amount of trouble that's happening in Alice Springs, it just needed to be paused. Councillor Little says the surge of remote residents coming into town often coincides with an upsurge in crime. If we're going to encourage 3,000 people to frequent Alice Springs Every weekend, uh, how can we start addressing some of the social issues? The AFLNT says there's no evidence around the supposed negative impact the competition has on social issues. It's followed up with a letter to the council saying that non-Aboriginal people and sporting teams will not be denied access to these facilities. Some councillors didn't support the decision, including Gavin Morris. There was a lot of a conversation going on around the negative impact of footy in town, and I understand that, and I'm not refuting that, but it would be fantastic to have some hard data to back that up. And secondly, given the support through governments in the $250 million package, do we want to be making decisions where we're unsure whether we're breaking the, the Racial Discrimination Act? Do we want the headlines to be Alice Springs Town Council in a war with AFLNT around racial discrimination acts at the same time as the national media and supports on us around actually working with this group of people to 
deal with the crisis in community. Are you really worried that this could be couched as a move that is targeting one racial group? There will be a particular section of the community which, yep, would 100% agree would see this along racial lines. And we need to get better in accommodating the communities around us who come in for a variety of different reasons. They'll come in for service provision. They may come in for the Pajama Festival. They may come in for the Alice Springs Show. Asked whether there's statistical evidence for crime upsurges during the footy carnival, the NT police didn't reply directly, but said it proactively patrols these events. The mayor, Matt Patterson, has defended the council's decision, saying he warned the AFL after there was violence and weapons seized following the 2021 Bush competition final that it needed to address the problem of antisocial behaviour. So it's certainly not a knee-jerk reaction. I think that AFLNT probably didn't think that it would get to this point and have kicked the can down the road, and that's the way that I look at it. He's rejected any suggestion the council's decision is racist and could invite a legal challenge. We're not saying no to Indigenous people playing AFL footy in Alice Springs. Alice Springs Town Council is very supportive of football here. We've just sponsored the Nine-A-Side football program for the summer, Sam. The president of the Alice Springs Red Tails Football Club, Rob Clark, runs sport programs to keep young remote players out of trouble and thinks cancelling the competition is removing opportunities. I think we're missing the, the purpose around sport uh, and I can see the powerful outcomes from the individuals that have changed their lives, you know, that, that haven't ended up in jail. The AFL refused an interview, but told the ABC it's looking for any alternative ways it can still hold the Bush team's competition. Jane Barden with that report. With public transport systems under pressure to be cleaner and greener, PM has been taking a look at what the future holds for one mass transit system that still remains heavily reliant on high emissions diesel fuel. As we reported earlier in the week, ferry services in this country are yet to make any serious effort to move away from using fossil fuels. So what's hindering a move to battery-powered ferries? Nick Grimm went to find out. When PM took to the water on a Sydney ferry, travellers were taking in the sights, smells and sounds of the city's waterways, including the roar of the diesel engines. One of those we met on board, no stranger to this mode of travel. I'm a retired ferry master and I just want to read acquaint myself with the river. Make no mistake, this retiree has seen a lot of water pass under the bridge and remembers well the bends and hidden obstacles that follow the Parramatta River's course as it makes its way towards Sydney Harbour. I was on ferries and tugs and small tankers. Yeah, a bit of everything. In and around Sydney or elsewhere? Yeah, no, Sydney Harbour, Botany Bay. And as far as this retired ferrymaster is concerned, battery-powered vessels won't be taking passengers anytime soon. No, I think that's a long way off, actually. Why? I can't see it being cost-effective. Not at this point. I think the cost is inhibiting, you know. How long are they going to last? How many trips are they going to get out of an electric ferry? I dare say it will come. So I guess for you, uh, part of the problem is that it's unproven technology. Absolutely. It's not an impossible dream. It's not something down the track. We could sign contracts this year if that was what the government wanted to do. 
Dr Gail Broadbent is a UNSW researcher with a focus on electric vehicle policy making. She's urging whichever party wins the upcoming New South Wales election to choose electric when it comes to replacing the ageing ferries that ply the waters from the city's CBD to Parramatta in the west. Parramatta River's ideal because the boat speed is actually relatively slow because the ferries can't go at maximum speed because of the wash and navigation and EVs can perform really well for that sort of task, so it's great. Battery power advocates have had their hopes boosted after the state's transport department abandoned a tender process for the building of seven new diesel-powered ferries and while it says it will now gauge market interest in a new process, It's remaining tight-lipped about whether electric ferries could be in the running. Like electric cars, one of their biggest technical obstacles is the recharging facilities that will provide electric ferries with sufficient range. Tim Burnell is the CEO of Australian boat builders Incat Tasmania. That's where we see the big problems, getting the power into the ports or to the berths where the vessels are going to need to charge and then having enough capacity so they can charge without causing other issues in the grid. The trade-off could be bigger batteries, but that means weight becomes another big issue. Right now, Incat Tasmania is using aluminium to build a massive battery-powered car ferry for a South American customer. While another company designing and building electric ferries, EV Maritime, currently has two under construction for the city of Auckland in New Zealand, made out of carbon fibre to keep weight down. CEO Michael Eaglin. If you make the boat lighter, you can use smaller motors and you can use less energy and so you can put smaller batteries in them, which makes it lighter, which means you can split smaller motors again, which, and you get on this kind of beneficial spiral. And that has some thinkers predicting an evolution in the way we travel by boat. Dr Saul Griffith is the founder of Rewiring Australia. I think there's this extraordinary opportunity to redesign boats. They'll look more like they used to. They'll look more like big, long, sleek canoes. And that's how we'll get the energy efficiency. That's how we'll make the batteries go further. There's a lot of wins to be had here. Provided that is, he argues, that the nation's transport authorities don't steer a course against the current. Nick Grimm reporting, and you can hear part one of his series on electrifying ferries on the PM website. It was on Monday's program. Well, thanks for joining me tonight for PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. 50 years ago, psychedelic drugs were successfully used to treat mental illness. That's until politicians stepped in and banned them. But soon, Australia will lead the world in legalising the use of drugs like MDMA and psilocybin, which is found in magic mushrooms, to treat patients. Today, a leading researcher on the incredible success of the drugs in trials and how they work. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.